are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Morning. Our scripture this morning is John 20, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Easter. Um, I uh, want to especially welcome those of you here this morning that may be guests of ours. We're so grateful that you are here to celebrate with us the resurrection of Christ this Easter morning, this rainy Easter morning. Um, Glad you're here. Uh, this event that, that literally changed everything 2,000 years ago. It changed most people in this room, changed the trajectory of our world, changed everything. Uh, my name is Austin Baker. I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel Church. And uh, at some point after the service, I'd love to meet you. If I've never met you before, I'd love to connect with you. Um, but thank you. Thank you for being here and welcome. Welcome. I hope you feel welcome here this morning. And to you, Emmanuel Church, those of you who uh, I see regularly, um, welcome to you as well. I'm so thankful to God to be here this Easter to celebrate the resurrection with you. And um, the Lord's grace has been evident in you towards my family these last nine weeks that I've been with you. And, uh, and for that, I'm so grateful and thankful to God for you and uh, just, just the kindness of the Lord upon me and my family. And so it's really honored to be with you this Easter Sunday, the very first one uh, as your pastor. So I want to pray for us again, and then I want us to reflect on the resurrection and God's grace towards us. Let's pray together. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the resurrection. And we believe that Jesus Christ is no longer in a tomb but He is at Your right hand, interceding for us, mediating for us. That He is reminding You of us. That He has atoned for our sin. And we believe, O God, that because of Christ, Your favor is upon us who are in Him. That our sin has been forgiven. And we look up, we keep our eyes fixed upwards, waiting for His return. So I pray now, O God, as we reflect upon and celebrate the empty tomb, that you convict us. For those that have not trusted in Christ for their salvation, may you draw them to your heart. May they see your love for them, 
And may we as your people see your love for us as well. Glorify yourself, O God, in the midst of our hearing this morning. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. A resurrection is everything. Everything about Christianity stands or falls on the validity of the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're not a Christian here at all this morning. Maybe you have been a Christian for a long time, regardless of where you fall on that spectrum of Christendom, so to speak. If the resurrection never happened, Christianity is worthless and you need to look for God in something else. Some people may argue, well, if the resurrection weren't true, Christianity still has much to offer the world. I mean, charity, sacrifice, love, mercy, grace. How can you say if the resurrection never happened that our faith is worthless? And my response would be, one, that the scriptures tell us it's worthless. That's the first reason. And the second reason is you're right. Christianity may still have something to offer this world in terms of charity and love and sacrifice, etc., etc. But without Easter Sunday, Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the mission of Christ fails. The word of Christ proves false. The people of God are still in their sins. Preachers are liars. Every single person who ever lived is in hell. Every single one of us are heading there as well. We are fools and we've completely wasted our lives. For we are committed, we've committed our entire existence as human beings and our entire eternity as human beings to following a lunatic rather than the life-giving eternal Son of God. Paul sums it up well when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not even been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are still dead in our sins, church, and everyone in this world should feel sorry for us if the resurrection never happened. The resurrection of Jesus is the pillar on which our entire faith stands or falls because no amount of love, no amount of charity, of mercy, of grace, or sacrifice would be enough to atone for our sins. You may seek to make the world a better place in your brief 80 years, maybe if God gives you that many years on this earth, but eventually, without the resurrection, the world burns up, everyone dies, and your efforts are futile. I read that to Christine earlier. She's like, that's pretty dark. I'm like, that's a point. It's supposed to be really dark. Without the resurrection, it's dark, all right? There's no hope. But as Paul goes on to say, but Christ has been raised from the dead. And today is not going to be a polemic on proving the plausibility of the resurrection. I think that can be done. There's a place for that. But it's not this morning. And if you do have questions about the validity of the resurrection, if you have doubts around that, we'll talk about that in a second. But I'd love to meet with you for coffee. I'd love to talk to you about that. Make myself available to you. Let's have a conversation about those things. But today we're going to end where we started in this sermon series. We've been tracking through a sermon series the last nine weeks called Signs Speak. This is the culmination of all the signs in the book of John. And we're going to look at this final sign, the apex of all signs that we've looked at. The sign on which all other signs find their significance. And we're going to see from John 20 
that Jesus brings about transformation through resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead and He has transformed everything. John chapter 20, verse 1, if you have your Bible. On the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early and saw that the stone had been taken away, or the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So Jesus is dead. Jesus has been dead at this point three days. He's been ruthlessly beaten, scourged with a whip containing bits of glass and metal and bone. He's been mocked and scorned. He's been stripped naked, nailed to a splinter-filled wooden cross. He bled out. He had his side pierced with a spear puncturing his heart sack around his heart. Blood and water flowed out. Jesus was dead. His body was removed from the cross. He'd been wrapped in linen grave clothes, placed in a new tomb, and anointed with 75 pounds of spices to mask the scent of his decaying body. His broken, beaten body was placed in a tomb that probably looked like this. I think I have a picture. A massive stone was rolled in front of the tomb, sealing this destroyed body in the dark of the grave. Jesus was fully dead. There's no question about it. There was no life left in his body. He was dead. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. The other gospel writers specify that she goes to the tomb with some other women. We read Luke at the beginning of our uh, service this morning. Specifies that she goes with other women. They're going to finish the anointing process of Jesus, which was probably cut a little short due to Passover being that weekend. She sees the stone is gone. She runs back to tell Peter and John that the body's gone, assuming he'd been moved. So Peter and John... They take off to investigate for themselves. They're running towards the empty tomb. John writes that he beat Peter there, which I think is pretty funny. Uh, it's not a necessary detail, but funny nonetheless, since he wrote the gospel, he can write whatever, you know, if he wants to brag a little bit, that's fine. <laughs> Verse 5, John looks in and he sees the linen cloths Jesus had been wrapped up in just lying in the tomb. Peter shows up in verse 6 and actually goes down into the tomb. He sees the grave clothes lying there. He sees the face cloth that would have been placed on the face of Jesus lying there as well, separate from the other clothes, neatly folded up. Isn't that interesting? Neatly folded up. Christ wasn't rushing to get out of the tomb. He sat up and folded up his face cloth. John enters the tomb after Peter and experiences the purpose of the signs in John. Verse 8, John saw and believed. This belief actually precedes his understanding of the Scriptures, as the text tells us here. I think that's really interesting as well. You know, I think sometimes we may believe that in our minds, well, I'll believe if I just understand more. I just need to fill my mind with knowledge, and then I'll believe. And understanding the Scriptures is a great thing. We should all be striving to understand the Word of the Lord. But belief sometimes precedes true understanding, massive understanding of the Scriptures, as we see here. Believing Christ has risen from the dead results in receiving the Holy Spirit in you, and it's the Holy Spirit of God that gives you understanding. So John believes, even before he understands how all of the Scriptures tie into the resurrection of Christ here. And then Peter and John, after witnessing the most incredible, transforming, massive, life-altering miracle ever, they just go home. Verse 10. They head back to their homes. It's almost like... A, a very casual verse for an anything but casual event. But Mary sticks around. And beginning with Mary Magdalene, the Apostle John begins to unpack for us the effects of the resurrection. 
John's going to show us how Jesus has transformed everything. Namely, he's transformed Mary Magdalene's grief into mission. The disciples' fear into gladness. And the doubt of Thomas to belief. For again, church, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he has transformed everything. So the resurrection of Christ first, from our text, transforms Mary's grief into mission. Mary stays behind in the garden weeping, if you read on in John 20. It appears she still doesn't understand that Jesus has been raised. She still believes His body has been moved. And no one has informed her of where. But in the midst of her weeping, two angels show up inside the tomb. One at the place where Jesus' head would have been. One at the place where His feet would have been. And they ask her why she's crying. Now Mary doesn't seem too startled by two guys just showing up inside the tomb that was, now em- that is, was empty and is now filled with two men. But she says, they've taken away my Lord, which I, I love the intimacy of that language. Even after Jesus has died, she's still holding out hope that he is the Messiah. She turns and sees a man standing there behind her. She doesn't recognize yet that it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. And he asks her the same thing. Why are you crying? And while Mary doesn't recognize his physical appearance, it really doesn't matter. He's in a new resurrected body. For even if she doesn't recognize him physically in his glorified new body, the scales fall off her eyes when, he hears, when she hears him say her name. Mary. She knows that voice was the voice that spoke all things into existence before the foundation of the world. It was the voice, that same voice that carried authority to drive seven demons out of her before she started following Jesus. It was the voice that raised Lazarus from the dead. It was the voice that cried from the cross, it is finished. It's probably the voice she thought she would never hear again. And this voice just spoke her name. And she's transformed. From a woman now hopelessly weeping in a garden, Mary Magdalene becomes the first missionary after the resurrection of Christ. She rushes back to the disciples. She proclaims, I've seen the Lord. His voice transforms her voice into a proclaimer of truth to those who have not yet seen the risen Lord. Now I'd venture to say, there are many here in this room, there's a lot of people here, I'd venture to say that Many of you right now are in a place of deep grief. I'm not sure the direct source of your grief, but I would guess that there have been many tears potentially shed on your pillows at night. Heaviness has been in your heart as you go about your day. Maybe your grief has advanced to some form of depression, short term or long term. It's not hard to be sad in our world. It's not hard to be sad. Maybe getting out of bed is becoming harder and harder in the mornings. I don't know where you're at. You know, I experienced a period of deep grief in my own life a little over 10 years ago. Without going into too much detail, um, my father made some massive mistakes that broke up my family. It's probably the hardest thing in my life I've ever had to walk through. I was 26 years old, and, and I love my dad. And to be honest with you, it's taken me a lot of time and therapy and the Holy Spirit to be able to say that. But I love my father, and I pray that he has learned a lot through his past mistakes. But I remember driving away from my mom that first time 
She was alone. And I remember just weeping, just crying, knowing my mom was going to be by herself. Now, it's been a long 10 years, and the Lord has redeemed much in that 10 years. But if I'm being honest with you, that grief can sometimes feel very raw, very real. The grief can sometimes cripple me in some ways. But you know what ministered to me the most over this last 10 years of that grief? It was those who've walked through similar situations who've had their grief turned into mission. God used their moments of grief and the things they learned from that to minister to me, to remind me, just like Mary's reminding the disciples here, that even in my grief, I have seen the Lord. And here's how. You know, shared grief is called empathy. It's lowering yourself down into the pit with another person living in the pit because you at some point in your life have been in that pit. In the midst of the pit, you grieve together. Grief. You don't rush through the grief. You don't try and hasten a false quick fix. You sit in it and you listen and you wait. And you use your past grief to be on mission with someone's current grief. Jesus has been raised from the dead, church. And he can transform your grief into mission. So Mary goes and proclaims this message of the resurrected Lord to the disciples. And it doesn't seem like it sticks because in verse 19, they're still hiding out that night on the first resurrection Sunday with the doors locked. But Jesus, in this new resurrection body, just goes through walls, which is crazy. Locked doors don't seem to matter. He just kind of shows up. He appears here. And He offers them the one thing they need in their moment of greatest fear. The one thing they need. Fear that just as their leader had just been crucified, the authorities may be coming after them. The one thing they need is what Jesus gave them. He gave them peace. He says, peace be with you. The first thing He says to them, peace be with you. And the source of their peace was his resurrection. You know, through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus transformed the disciples' fear into gladness. Their fear into gladness. He shows them his hands that were pierced. He shows them his side that had a spear thrust through. The marks, the wounds that won their salvation, he still bears in his body. In verse 20, if you look at verse 20, the response of the disciples is they were glad when they saw the Lord. Gladness. The Greek word used here for gladness is kairo. Literally means delight or pleasure. The disciples were filled with delight, with pleasure at beholding the risen Christ. You know, we'll do a lot of things to attain pleasure and delight. I'm not just speaking about sinful pleasure and delight, although we'll do a bunch of foolish things to attain that as well. But our lives are lived every single day seeking those things that will bring us joy, that will delight our souls. We'll take great risk. We'll spend great money. We'll invest lots of time into things that bring us pleasure, that bring us delight. Good meals, vacations, experiences, hobbies, our husbands and wives, if you're married, our children, if you have children. I mean, if I were to ask you right now what you did over the weekend, I would venture to say that 9 out of 10 10 of you would say something that tried to enhance your delight in something. Now, it might have been a miserable experience for you, but you at least tried. 
to have some delight. That's the initial seeking after. That's what you're seeking after. Was pleasure. Was delight. Now, gladness, delight, pleasure, it's a very powerful thing. It can drive people to do pretty wild things. I mean, think about these disciples. These, these guys, their delight, their pleasure, their gladness was in the risen Christ. These men who moments before were hiding out in a room with the door locked at fear of losing their lives, they see the resurrected Christ literally in the flesh, and then 10 of 11 of them go off and die horrific deaths over the next 30 years of their lives, proclaiming the truth that they had seen this risen Christ. The affections of their hearts were so stirred up and transformed in this moment that in their desire to, to see others take delight and pleasure in the same Christ, it drove them to proclaim the gospel to the very ends of the earth at the cost of their lives. For their greatest pleasure and delight was derived from bringing glory and acclaim to the one whose hands and side they saw and touched. The resurrection changes everything, church. I mean, how often do we, do I, wake up in the morning and my first thought is Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead? How does this transform my day? How would that change you? Change your approach to your day if your first thought was Christ is raised from the dead. It would change the decisions you make. It would change what you participate in. It would change your perspective throughout the day. It would transform your outlook on suffering and hardship. It would transform your relationships with your coworkers, with your neighbors, your spouse, your kids. As it did for these disciples and countless others who followed Christ throughout the centuries, it would change everything. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, church, and He can transform your fear into gladness. So the resurrected Christ, one, transforms Mary's grief into mission, the disciples' fear into gladness, and then third, He transforms Thomas's doubt into belief. His doubt into belief. And we officially end where we began. The purpose of signs was to engender belief. The purpose of the resurrection, a qualitatively different sign than any we've looked at thus far, was to bring about belief. And Thomas is our case study here. You know, Thomas has been with Jesus for the last three years of his ministry, one of the original 12 apostles. We have a few appearances of him throughout the gospel accounts, but as most of us know, unfortunately, what Thomas is most known for is his doubt. Doubting Thomas. Right? I mean, Nickel Creek even wrote a song called Doubting Thomas. I mean, it's, it's, everybody knows about Doubting Thomas, believer or unbeliever alike. Thomas and doubt go hand in hand, which is really unfortunate. This is the legacy of this guy. The text fills us in on some details about his doubt. Verse 24, if you look at it, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So, so G Thomas was not present when Jesus showed up to the other apostles. The disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord, but Thomas wants proof. He won't believe until he puts his hands in the wounds of Christ and his hands in his side. He literally says, unless those things happen, he will, quote, never believe. I mean, this is our culture, right? The natural leaning of our day and age is towards doubt, not belief. You know, ever since the Enlightenment in the 1800s, empirical proof has kind of taken a front seat to matters of faith. If it cannot be proven with hard facts and data, then it cannot possibly be believed. Certainty is seen as arrogant. Doubt is seen as humble. 
right? The more sure you are of something, especially matters of faith, the more arrogant you appear to be in the eyes of our culture. Tim Keller, in his uh, book, Making Sense of God, which I recommend to anyone, if you have any doubts at all, read Making Sense of God. It's a great resource. Or maybe if you have a believer and have doubts, read Making Sense of God. It's a great book for anybody. But one of the sources of those doubts is the failure of the Christian church to act Christian, right? You see all the corruption in the, in the church throughout history. You see all of the faith leaders making these huge moral blunders. It will cause anyone to have doubts, right? Anybody, myself included. If Christianity is true, how can these things continue to happen? Well, if we're to take a look at the source of that doubt and peel back the layers, my initial question to you would be, well, what is the criteria for judging the moral character of those fallen leaders? I would venture to say that uh, those, the criteria you're using to judge those moral leaders was actually given to you by Christianity. That it's a Christian criteria you're using to judge Christians. I mean, if Christianity is not true, then why does it even matter if people don't act Christian? There are a litany of examples we could unpack here, undergirding doubt in our culture. A litany of examples. But suffice to say, our contemporary culture actually stands upon many implicit beliefs and faith assumptions that if we were to, we were to peel back the layers, I would say they're great people of faith in and of themselves. And I truly extend an invitation to anyone here that may have doubts. Let's talk about it. Listen, my schedule's wide open, all right? Apart from like 9.30 on a Tuesday, which is staff meeting, let's, let's do something, okay? Let's hang out. And Christine, if you have something for me to do, then that's off the books too. But other things, I want to meet with you. I want to talk with you. I want to grab coffee. I want to get lunch. Let's talk. Let's talk about your doubts. Let's talk about faith issues. I would love to do that. It's an open invitation to anyone. Please. But Thomas here requires proof, and my goodness, does he get proof. Jesus appears to Thomas, he shows him his hands and his side, and he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas responds with the goal of the Gospel of John when he responds, my Lord and my God. Thomas beholds the risen Christ, his doubting is turned into believing, the great preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon, in his autobiography, he recounts the night of his conversion, which happened when he was 15 years old. And he said of his life, he said before his conversion, he said, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feeling, I was unhappy, I was desponding, I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. So on a snowy January morning in 1850, 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon was, out of his desperation, was trying to make an attempt to get to the church that christened him in London, but he couldn't make it because of the snow, and so he veered into a side street, into this primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. The actual preacher couldn't even make it to his own church because of the snow, so this substitute lay preacher was up preaching this night that Spurgeon wandered into this primitive Methodist church. And I want you to listen to what Spurgeon had to say in his own words. I'm going to read a good portion here, so just follow along with me and bear with me. But he said this in his own words. He said, The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. 
He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that doesn't take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man not need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man not need to be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex. Many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. When he got about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And he said to me, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I've not been accustomed to having remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you'll always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. And there and then the cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. This Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, the appeal is just the same. If you are here and not a Christian, if you do not know Jesus for whatever reason, my charge to you is look up and believe. Look to Christ. Behold the risen Christ who died to pay the penalty for sin as your substitute and was raised to life to provide a way back to God. Look to Jesus Christ, the one you were created to live for, for you will remain miserable until you look to Jesus Christ. The Lord is offering you the invitation to come to Him to have your sins forgiven. He is kind and He is gracious to us. And His kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And for those of us who are believers, the charge is also the same. May we continue to look to Christ as the source of our mission, our gladness, and our belief. His glory is our goal. And His person is the foundation of our pleasure. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, church. And He has transformed everything. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the cross. Thank You for the resurrection. Thank You for Your kindness and Your grace and Your mercy towards us in Jesus. We were dead in a pit 
And instead of watching us dig ourselves out, You sent Your only Son to dig us out. You grabbed us out of the pit. You raised us back to life. You breathed into our lungs the breath of life. Filled us with the Spirit of God. And now we have hope. Our lives will never be the same. Our lives will be spent bringing great glory and honor to You. What, great, what a great way to, to spend the entirety of our days. You are worthy of all the honor and all the praise and all the glory for You are dead, but now You are alive, O oh Jesus. You are the sacrificial Lamb, O oh Christ, and now You've been raised as the roaring lion. You came in on a donkey, you'll return on a war horse. We live our lives for You, for Your glory. Father, I pray, I pray now, even now, that You convict by the Spirit of God and draw men and women, boys and girls in this room to Your heart, to Yourself. Open their eyes to see the beauty of the Gospel, the beauty of Your love for us, the beauty of the hope that we have in Christ. Only you can save. There's no amount of words I can say that will save. There's not amount of, no amount of preaching I can do that will save. My words are feeble. My words are weak. I'm just a man. Only you, oh God, can save. So save. Oh God, out of your great mercy and kindness towards us. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham. 